Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Don't hesitate to take a look at that table of contents to find your way there. Habakkuk chapter 2 is where we are. This is our uh, Trusting in Troubled Times teaching series kicked off last weekend. We will only be looking at uh, four verses here this morning as we head into chapter 2. Waiting on the Lord is our uh, current, uh, is what we're titling this weekend's message. Hey, how many like country music? Show of hands. Uh, it's uh, part of the fall. I was, I was, I was told the country. How many? How many think that country music is part of the fall? Fall, the fall of mankind. I'm, that's a joke. That's a bad joke. There will be no country in heaven. No country music in heaven. Some of you are applauding that. Woo! Yeah. Actually, there probably will be, okay? The lyrics will have to be changed quite substantially from a lot of the songs that are out there, but uh, there'll be all sorts of music in heaven. Trusting in troubled times, Habakkuk chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 4, waiting on the Lord. Because we live in an almost instant everything society, instant everything society, it makes it hard for us to wait for almost anything. We have a tough time with that. And yet waiting is a very important theme in the Bible. Uh, It talks a lot about waiting on the Lord. And if you understand waiting and you learn to wait, it will help you in troubled times. If you're going to make it through troubled troubled times, you're going to have to learn to wait on the Lord. Now, as we embarked upon this study last weekend in Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk is complaining about evil, injustice. He's pretty upset. Would you guys agree? You can see this turmoil, this anguish in in Habakkuk's heart, and he just pours his heart out to God. He's even wondering, God, do you hear me? God, are you doing anything? And uh, God responds to him, yes, I am working, and if I told you what what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. And it's almost as if Habakkuk says, no, 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 I, I, I will believe you. I will understand. Tell me. So God tells him what he's doing. And how does Habakkuk respond? I can't believe it. I can't believe that you're doing this. And uh, so he's in turmoil. And what we found, so it goes something like this. Uh, Habakkuk complains, God responds. And then Habakkuk complains, but he complains a little bit differently here. He complains Again, with confusion, but he realizes that there is something worse than disappointment with God, and that is disappointment without God. You see, what God tells him is that you you think that uh, this is wicked and evil and unjust. Well, just wait until you see what I'm going to do. I'm going to use this uh, wicked, evil nation, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, who are more wicked than, uh, than my people, and I'm going to bring them into the land, and they're going to, they're going to wipe you out and carry you off into their own land. And, and, and I know you're not going to fully understand this, but this is a part of my sovereign work in your life because I know exactly what you need, and I love you with an everlasting love. We talked about that this last, uh, last weekend. And so he's troubled over that, and yet he understands, though, though he's disappointed with God, there's something much worse than disappointment with God, and that is disappointment without God. And... Um, Only a person that really understands the grace of God can have that kind of a relationship with God. Would you agree with that? If you really understand the grace of God? Uh, When I first met my wife, um, and for a number of years, I was the controller. She was the more compliant one. 
And uh, she tended to express her anger in a passive way, Eskimo treatment. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of freeze you out. I'll just do the, do the freeze out treatment towards you if I don't like what you're doing. So it was kind of more Eskimo, it was passive aggression. And mine was more open aggression. Mine was more the gunslinger. More of the uh, come with guns blazing and wait to see who's standing after the dust settles, okay? And uh, all of us tend to gravitate toward one way or the other when it comes to conflict and as we work through these things. Now, if I would have continued that path and if she hadn't confronted me over that and we worked through that, through that conflict, and which created uh, greater levels of maturity and intimacy with each of us, uh, she would have probably left me over time. There's no doubt about it uh, because I would have pushed her completely away. But what I had to do was I had to find out and I had to dis- really help to create a safe environment, a safe environment for her to be able to express her heart to me. And so, so this safety created her honesty, which she knew that uh, I wasn't going to cut and run no matter what she said to me because I was committed to her. But she not only needed to have, have that security, but she also needed to have that significance that in her heart she knew that where would she go to find such a handsome hunk as me? I mean, why would she leave me for anyone else? I mean, I, I know that's kind of a joke, but, but when you think about your relationship with God, this is what's going down in Habakkuk's life, is that he's disappointed with God, and yet he has this security. Grace, grace by the way, you need to understand grace. We talk about it around here a lot. The basis of our relationship with God is grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It means what, what Christ, who Christ is, what he's done for us. It's the personal work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. That it's, it's his favor, and it can't be earned or achieved. It can only be received. It can be entered into by faith in Jesus. Every other major religion and cult of our world today is, is the antithesis of that. It's based on works. It's a works righteousness that if I do all the right things, then God will accept me. Well, the Christianity is totally opposite of that. I accept you, therefore you will want to obey me because of my love for you. It works like that. And so out of this grace, because I have his favor, now think about that. You have the favor of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's an astounding, an astounding truth that often we do not live in the reality of. But if I have that... If I have that, it creates a security that I can open my heart up to God. I know he's not going to cut and run, but I also have a sense of significance and value. Where would I go? Where would I go? No one will ever love me like he loves me. See, that's grace. I can be open and honest and share my heart, and I know he's not going to cut and run, but at the same time, at the same time, he so values me and loves me. Where else would I go? If I can't work through life and manage life with you, there's no way I'm going to try to do it without you. That's what Habakkuk is saying. He says, God, I don't fully understand what's going down, but man, where else, where else would I go? And so we come now to chapter 2, and we have the interlude of Habakkuk waiting for God's second response to him. And in this, he teaches us how to wait how to wait? How do you wait on God? I'd like to pray here, and I'd like to ask you this question because it's important that you apply this specifically to your life. I can't help but think that there's a lot of us here that are waiting, that maybe you're waiting, you're waiting to be healed by God. You've been praying and praying, and you desperately need to be healed physically. You might have cancer or chronic illness, or maybe you're waiting to be healed emotionally from past hurts, or maybe you're wanting to be healed spiritually from guilt and shame 
You know, the sins committed in the past, they just, they haunt, harass, they hammer the heck out of you. Or maybe it's just, man, you've been seeking God and you need your heart, your soul revived. You just feel that there's this, this spiritual dullness in your life and you're just, you've been crying out to God, God, where are you? What in the world is going on? Or maybe you're waiting for a family member or a friend to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they're on a path that you just, you see them, they're going to crash and burn just real soon. And you've been pouring your heart out to God and you don't even see anything. You don't even see the water even moving at all. No ripples at all. Or maybe you're waiting to get out of school or to get a job or to get a new job or to get out of debt or to get married or to get your marriage on track or to have kids or to get rid of those kids. They're waiting that they would grow and go. God bless them. So what are you waiting for? Think about that. God is here this morning. He is here this morning to meet with you and to teach us how to wait on him. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's go before the throne of grace once again. Father God, in your love, you desire what is best for us. In your wisdom, you know what is best for us, and in your sovereignty, you will always do what is best for us, whether, whether we can understand it or not, just like Habakkuk. Teach us how to wait on you in troubles. And as we learn to wait upon you through the study of your holy word, may, may you strengthen us so that we can mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint, for our deepest joy and your greatest glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. So let me read the text. It's a short one here. And uh, then we're going to dive in. There's one, two, three, four, five things that we're going to learn about waiting. We're to wait on God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me in what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now the Lord responds, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, and he may, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And let's read this last part of verse 4 aloud and together. It's a very significant part of the Bible. Here we go. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's read it one more time. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the word of the Lord this morning to us. And so we are to wait on God responsibly, objectively, patiently, affectionately, and faithfully. Here's the first one, responsibly. We see that in verse 1. Notice what he says here. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post. He's using this uh, imagery, imagery of a soldier not leaving his post, but doing his duty for the security of the whole city. And uh, 
I found it interesting recently. Did you hear about the story of that air traffic controller who fell asleep as these big planes were f- coming in in the middle of the night? And uh, That's really frightening, but not near as frightening as someone who's to be, will be at their post watching over a city and that part of the wall could be breached by enemy attack if he were to leave his post. And so he's saying, yes, I don't fully understand what God's up to. I'm disappointed with you, but I know that it would even be worse, you know, if I left you at this time. So I'm going to stay my post. I will take my stand at my watch post. Now, during troubling times, people often do two two things that are detrimental to their ability to get through the difficult times. And the first thing is that they... I'm going to turn that fan down just a tad. Two things that we typically do, and I, I have found myself doing these things too, is that are detrimental to our ability to get through hard times, is that we, we migrate and we medicate. It's there on your notes. We, we migrate away. We withdraw from the spiritual disciplines. We, we tend to withdraw from church participation, Bible study, prayer, church involvement. And we do that because of self-pity. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And that's the work of the enemy to isolate us, to feel like nobody understands where I am. Not a soul in that church understands where I am. And that's the work of, of our adversary to, to get us away. And not only that, we tend to, and so we, we kind of isolate ourselves from the people that we need the most. And, uh, and we withdraw oftentimes from the spiritual disciplines because we, quite frankly, we're not getting anything out of them. We just kind of feel like, wow, I'm doing all that and I'm not getting anything out of this. It's interesting, the... Uh, the great uh, hymn writer, John Newton, Amazing Grace, he wrote, and pastor, he was told by a friend who was going through troubling times, he asked him, hey, are you praying? And the guy said, no, I'm not praying. I'm just not getting anything out of my prayer. And so John Newton responded, I can assure you, you'll get nothing out of not praying. I can assure you, you're not, you're not going to get anything out of not praying. So don't stop praying. Keep doing the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, whether you're getting thing, anything out of it or not. In other words, continue to take your stand at your watch post. Don't leave the post. So we migrate away from spiritual disciplines, but we also medicate. We medicate because we want to feel good. So we do things with money, sex, food, drugs that we shouldn't. And both of these our ways of leaving our post. Well, everybody look up here just for a moment. You may be weary. I know that some of you are extremely weary as you've battled and and you're wondering, God, how much longer? I don't know if I can hang on. You may be weary and feel God is absent, but you can't leave your post. You can't leave your post. You've got to continue to, to absorb yourself and envelop yourself with the spiritual disciplines and surround yourself with people that can encourage you. And you've got to stay away from trying to medicate the pain deep within you. Let me give you some verses here that go along with that. You'll notice in parentheses, I'll give you a number of verses. And the best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. Isaiah 26, 8, he says, Walking in the ways of your laws, we wait on you. 
So he's saying, we walk in the ways of your law. We're going to continue to walk in the ways of what you teach us and instruct us as we wait on you. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. So regardless of what goes down, your name and renown, to, to put on display your glory, no matter what's going down in our life, is the most important thing. We will not leave our post. That's what he's saying. Galatians 6, 9 puts it this way. This would be a good verse, good memory verse. Especially if you're growing weary. It says, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary. Do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You can't give up. Don't give up. Yeah, but I'm not getting anything out of it. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't medicate the pain. Let it drive your heart into the nature and the beauty and the glory and the character of God. Here's another verse, Romans 14, 10 through 12. Basically, let me just uh, summarize it. He's, he basically, he's basically telling us that all will stand before the judgment seat of God and each of us will give an account of our life to God. So that's why we don't want to give up. So, so we are to wait on God responsibly. Here's the second one. We are to wait on God objectively. And that's the second part of verse 1. So he says, I will take my stand by my watch post and station myself on the tower. Once again, he's using this imagery for us. Cities built towers so that they could see what was coming. Bad weather, wild animals, enemies, so they could prepare themselves. Within, typically within the walls of the castle, there would be these towers so that they could see and it would give them this, this perspective. So what does this mean when it comes to troubles? This is what it means. All my troubles must not be seen subjectively through my feelings, but objectively relative to the facts of the nature and character of God according to his word. I've got to allow my difficulties as I've already stated, to drive my heart, to push my heart into the very nature and the character of God. Let me give you some verses here that help us with that. Proverbs 18.10, this is a verse that seems to keep coming up. It says, the name of the Lord is a high tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. Isn't that great? So the name of the Lord, speaking of his nature and his character, is a high tower. In other words, we run to him, and he gives us a perspective that otherwise we wouldn't have. Here's another verse we've used in the last few weeks. Psalm 9, 9, and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will trust in him because he is never forsaken those who seek him. So those who know his name, his character, his nature. Here's another verse, Philippians 4.13. Some of you probably have memorized this one. Paul, you need to understand the context of it. We typically kind of use this as kind of one of those little slogan verses that we can kind of accomplish anything. But this is actually in the context of Paul being in prison, handcuffed to a praetorian guard 24 hours a day under house arrest, and he's in the context of saying that he can, he's learned to be content regardless of what goes down in his life. 
And whether he's got a whole lot or very little or no matter what the circumstances are. And this is what he says. I can do all things. You probably could probably finish that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's in the context of it doesn't matter what's going on. In other words, he's got a different perspective about his circumstances because he's got Christ in his life. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, this is a great, these are great verses to memorize and meditate on. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His glory and goodness. Now, let me go through that just very slowly. His divine power, His divine power, supernatural power, resurrection power, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge, the word knowledge speaks of intimacy with God, allowing your heart to be driven into the nature and character of God. As you get to know Him, and as you experience Him, as you walk with Him, as He became, becomes the passion, the purpose of your life, the pursuit of your life, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His glory and goodness. And it begins to give us this, this different kind of perspective. So we are, to, we are to wait on the Lord responsibly and objectively. So if you're troubled with sickness, you, you run to the tower. And you'll see that the, really the only sickness that can destroy you is sin. But Christ through the cross has set us free from the penalty of sin. If you're troubled over debt, you run to the tower, you get in the tower, and you'll begin to see that the only debt that can destroy you is, is your indebtedness to God. But he has paid in full on the cross all of your debt. If you're troubled by a bad relationship, you run to the tower, you get in the tower, and you will see that the only relationship loss that can destroy you is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has secured that by his grace, by his power. We are secure in him through the cross. I love what C.S. Lewis says. Interesting statement. This is from his sermon, really a, one of his most amazing sermons called The Weight of Glory. Listen to what he says here. Can anything be added to the conception of being with Christ? For it must be true, as an old writer says... That he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. So when you begin to understand that God is for you and not against you, and you have God, you have God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through what he did on the cross. To the degree that you understand that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, you will have the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind. Through Jesus Christ. To the degree that you don't have peace and that perspective and the power that comes as a result of that is to the degree that you're not resting in the fact that you have peace with God. You have peace with God this morning through grace, by faith, in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he uses this idea here, C.S. Lewis, this conception of being with Christ. Because our concept of God determines the quality of our relationship with God. But not only does it determine the quality of our relationship with God, it determines how we're going to manage the life's issues and how we see life's issues. And I, and I know that any time that I'm overwhelmed by life's issues, it's because, it's because I've got such a small concept of God. 
But the more I allow my difficulties to push my heart closer to the reality of this living God who came to this earth, died for me, gave his life for me, if he did that, he'll take care of all of my other issues. Well, I mean, it begins to do something different in our lives. Those problems, those temptations, those difficulties, the trauma of life is not near as overwhelming anymore. And so oftentimes our greatest need is is to see the beauty and the glory and the splendor of God. That's that's what we need more than anything. I'm going to show you a, a video testimony of someone that I think that exemplifies Many of these points, but particularly these first two points, we are to wait on God responsibly and then objectively. It's uh, Linda Parker's testimony, and uh, some of you, many of you know what, devasta- uh, what devastation she experienced this, this last year. And I want you to hear a little bit of her story, and we'll talk a little bit about it and continue to work through our notes. Watch this. My name is Linda Parker, and I come to you today to thank all my friends and family at Desert Breeze Church. I've been at Desert Breeze now for about two years. My son, Justin Parker, on November 22nd, um, I came home to find that he had passed away. He had taken his life. And I never really, really knew what it was like to have a church family. Pastor Ray always talks about it, but until you experience it, you just really never know it. For 43 years, I was of another faith, and when my husband died, there was no one, no one that came to my house and comforted me and brought food and was there for me. We'd gone to that church for about 30 years, and no one had come. The day that Justin passed, I was out consulting that day, and I can't find my way out of a paper bag. So um, I had called him at work. Even if he was in a meeting, he would call me back. And he never did, and I called him several times because I needed directions on where to go. So I figured, okay, I better go back to the house and look at the computer and get some directions off of MapQuest. And I went back to the house and I found what every mother fears. I found Justin and I remember calling 911 and I remember going to my front door and screaming and screaming and screaming at the top of my lungs. I can't even begin to tell you the feelings inside of me of loss, of wondering why. But there was Desert Breeze. There was Bill Newsom. There was Lee Day. There was Pastor Ray and Nancy. There was Cassie Johnson and Ross. And everybody was there. And I just couldn't believe. I couldn't believe what the family was like, what we do in our church. And I kept thinking, well, I don't do very much because all I do is the the information table once a month. But you know, whatever it is that you choose to do, 
however it is that you choose to help, it came very clear to me that night that we are family and how very, very, very much that I love each one of you. When you think about family, you think about family that, you know, your sister or your brother or something like that. You can't choose those people because they're your biological family. But you get to choose the family that you pray with, the family that, that surrounds you. And that's what Desert Breeze is to me. You all are my family. We, we are for each other. We support one another. We laugh together. We cry together. We pray together and we play together. And when all of those things are brought into one culmination, we can't help but see the Lord there. Let's give Linda a hand for sharing her story with us. She's sitting right here. Thanks, Linda. She did not leave her post. She allowed the family to surround her and to give her this objective perspective that God is still in control. He loves her. And God will take care of her. And I've seen that in you, Linda. I've seen that. I've seen you exemplify what we're talking about here today. God bless you. That's right. Praise God. She said if everybody wasn't here to support her, let's give her a hand. That's why we emphasize small groups. That's why we emphasize involvement here at Desert Breeze. And it's for your sake, for the other's sake. And so we saw some phenomenal things. You know, something also, also when we were there, when Nancy and I were there, that the police officer, he goes on a lot of these uh, suicides and other calls, homicides. And this is what he said. He had never seen in his history, the love and the support that was being poured out right there from this church family, from the DB family. It's pretty amazing. It's, it's God. As she said, that's, that's a, really a picture of the love of Jesus. And so we are to wait on God responsibly, objectively, and then patiently. Look at verse 3. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. If it seems slow... Wait for it. The word wait means don't give up or despair. It's like, like if you're waiting in a doctor's office or for a bus or in a restaurant. How many have ever got up and left a restaurant before they actually came and waited on you because it took so long? Okay. How many got up and left a restaurant before they brought the bill to you? <laughs> I never have, but my wife wants me to do it all the time. No, that's not true. She actually t- would tell me stories about her brothers that they would do that in their high school years. I forget what they called it. It was some kind of game they called. Oh, you guys know that game. That's frightening. Let's just bow our heads right now and pray. Dine and Dash. That's exactly what she said. I couldn't remember it. Hey, let's go play that game, Dine and Dash. 
we don't have any money, but we'll go and eat for free. And you will go to prison. Um, so responsibly, objectively, patiently, he says, don't give up or despair. Don't dine and dash. That's what he says right there. It's somewhere in the Hebrew. I think we can probably maybe pull it up. Okay, that's not what it's saying. I, how many have ever said this, or maybe you know people said, man, I, I just wish I had more patience as you're running that person off the road in front of you. I wish I had more patience. Almost as if patience happens to you. But actually, patience comes as a byproduct of two deliberate actions. The first one, it's there on your notes. You've got to stop playing God. You need to have humility. Let me read to you James four thirteen through 17. It's an interesting verse. He says, Come now, you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Do something with me real quick. Just put your hand in front of your face like just kind of blow into your... Ooh, that doesn't, sound, that doesn't smell very good, does it? But he's saying that our life is nothing more than just a, a breath or a mist. Morning mist, here, gone. We don't get much of that here in Phoenix, but when you do, it's not here for very long. He's saying that's, that's, your, that's your life. I shared last week that if you were to put all of history and all of history was one hour, your life in history would be a millisecond. Boom, that's it. That quick. He's saying it's a mist. It's here, gone. It's here and it's gone. So let me ask you this. In fact, if you were to even look at all of life as this continuum and, and you, you drew this line that went on forever and ever, we know that eternity, when we step from time into eternity, that goes on forever and ever and ever, and you could run that line all the way out, and your life would be represented by a very small dot on that continuum, on that spectrum. Now let me ask you this. For your own good and God's glory, don't you think, doesn't it make sense that God would sacrifice this little dot for the sake of your eternity? That he would allow certain things into this life to get your attention, to drive your heart into the joy and the love and the beauty of Jesus so that for all eternity you could celebrate with him? Don't you think that that would make sense to sacrifice the dot for the line that goes into eternity. That's what he's saying. He's saying that our life is but a mist and our tendency is to focus on the dot rather than the line. To focus on the millisecond rather than the hour or however long. Of course, it's more than an hour. All of eternity goes on forever and ever. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So, so he's, not, he's not against us planning. But plan with the sense of, of that God's sovereign, he's in control, is if it's the Lord's will, this is what we will do. So there is this balance between being organized and planning, but at the same time surrendering. It's a little bit like our prayer life. Oftentimes people would, would, will ask me, well, how long should I pray for healing? Until you die, that's how long you should pray for healing. But ultimately, surrender the results to God. And in fact, if you were to read this same text up a little bit further in this chapter, chapter 4 of James, James says in chapter 4, verse 2, you don't have because you don't ask. So there's almost this practical deism or this... Uh, functional deism that we practice. We don't ask and we don't have oftentimes because we don't ask. So we need to ask. 
We can have this personal relationship with God. But then he also says, but when we do ask, we ask selfishly. So we can kind of fall off on either side. It's either this functional deism or this functional paganism. We make life all about us. And we ask selfishly. And I think the best example of this is, uh, is found in the life of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are to ask boldly but surrender completely. In other words, we are to plan, we are to plan our lives but ultimately surrender whatever the results might be, ultimately to him and to his glory and our good. We are to ask boldly, but surrender completely. Remember Jesus in the garden? He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's asking boldly, but then he surrenders completely. But not my will, but your will be done. So no matter what you're going through, I would continue to go before the throne of grace and ask and keep on asking and keep on asking. I was thinking of uh, David and Rhonda down here, David lost his, his mom, Ron's out in the foyer, lost his beautiful bride this last year. And uh, it was uh, this, this year, actually. It was unbelievably devastating. And, and all the way to the very end, she was dying of cancer where she couldn't even lift her head up off the bed. We continued to ask, God, heal her. We believe you can heal her. Heal her, heal her, but we completely surrender And I saw the boldness in their lives as they continued to do that. I think it honors God. I think it honors God to continue to ask. God, I'm going to ask with my very dying breath, but ultimately I surrender completely to your will. Not my will. Your will be done. God, you're in control and you love me. See, there's that balance. That's that balanced, healthy perspective that we need to have. And so... And so if we're going to do it patiently, we've got to stop playing God. Yes, we can ask Him, but we need to surrender completely. Ask boldly, surrender completely. And if it, in other words, if it's the Lord's will. Where does worry come from when we worry? Anybody like me? Worry? You worry about a lot of things? I worry a lot. I have a tendency to worry, and I don't like it. But, uh, but I worry. But this is worry comes from assumed omniscience. You think you know. Omniscience is being all-knowing. You think you know more than God. You think you know all, and you know where this is headed, and you know how it's going to end, but you don't. That's assumed omniscience. Worry comes from that. And the way that we eliminate that is that we've got to surrender over to God's love and his wisdom and his sovereignty, that God is loving, wise, and in control of our lives. So when I start worrying, I've got to go back to to his nature and his character and allow it to drive my heart deep into that. It's an opportunity to increase my joy in in God. So we learn to be patient. It doesn't happen to us, but it happens and it comes as a byproduct of two deliberate actions. We've got to stop playing, uh, stop playing God. And then we've also got to start seeing troubles as an opportunity for spiritual growth. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, immediately when I say that, I, uh, you know, I, I can honestly say that when we, uh, when, we were, when we had this blowout coming back from San Diego this last summer and... Uh, with my truck, cab of my truck, double cab, family in there with me. It was pretty frightening going 120 miles an hour down the freeway. I wasn't going that fast. My wife would say I was, but it was probably about 70 or 80 and have that blood on the front tire. And because of my expert driving abilities, I was able to keep it on the road. That's not true. It was by God's grace. It was by God's grace. The highway patrol even said that. Wow. He says, we see cars all over, straw, you know, 
all over the road out here because of this. I don't know how you were able to keep it on the road. And it was, I, it was just the grace of God. We knew that. And I, I've got to be honest that the 12 hours we spent out in the middle of the desert at 150 degrees in the middle of the summertime, I wasn't saying, oh, goody, an opportunity to grow in grace. <laughs> Skippity-doo-dah, skippity-day. In fact, if you were to have said that to me, I would have probably tried to kill you at that moment. Say, like, come over here and let me choke you out. I'll show you grace. I mean, that's, that's how I was feeling just to, you know, and I started thinking, you know, it's like, oh, praise God. This is an opportunity to grow in intimacy and, and maturity in the Lord. Woo-hoo-hoo. Usually when someone says that right at that moment, you just, everybody wants to dogpile them. And yet the Bible tells us over and over again that difficulties are opportunities unlike anything else. Listen to a couple of these other verses, James 1, 2 through 4. He says this. <laughs> I mean, when I read this, I just like, ah. I'm still not completely there. And I, at times I get glimpses of this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's opportunity for maturity. Look at Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, um, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, listen to this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's opportunity for God to pour his love into your heart. Listen to this, man. This is amazing. So difficulties, troubles, trials, opportunity, conflict in your life, opportunity to increase your maturity and increase your intimacy in God so that he can pour his love into your heart and you can experience him in ways that you otherwise would never experience him. That's what it's saying to us. And so we develop that patience. By we got to stop playing God and start seeing troubles as an opportunity to grow in maturity and intimacy with God. Job 23.10. Job says something really interesting. Remember Job lost everything, his family, wealth, even his health. This is what he says, pretty powerful verse. He says, God knows what he is doing with me, and when he has tested me, then I will come forth pure as gold or forth as pure gold. So my question for you, is your life becoming more and more like pure gold through the difficulties of your life? It can. It should. You need to learn to wait on Him as I do. We're to wait on God responsibly, objectively, patiently, and then affectionately. Oh, I love this. We go back to chapter 1 we read last week. Notice, listen to these, affection, you know, these, these terms of affection that, that, that Habakkuk has towards God. He says, oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One. And then we jump ahead the very end of the book as we're heading towards the end of the book. In about three weeks, we'll hit this, these verses, Habakkuk three seventeen through 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even when my life is empty in every dimension, financially, relationally, whatever goes down, I will rejoice in the Lord. And what we're finding here, that waiting, in waiting, you are not waiting on the Lord's answers or reward, but you are waiting on the Lord. Habakkuk has often been called a little book of Job. And uh, in the book of Job, Chapters 1 and 2, it starts off with this dialogue between God and Satan, with Satan asking God, does Job serve God for nothing? 
In other words, Satan is saying to God, Job's serving you because he's using you. He doesn't really love you. He only loves you because you bless him so much. And uh, Satan is basically right about, about all of us, that we tend to do that. In fact, when we come to God initially, it's to get from him rather than to be with him. But if it stays there, if it stays there, if we are, if, if we are coming to use God rather than to be with God and it stays there, it's, it's really because we have failed to see the most amazing thing about God. And that is loving him in and of himself. In fact, people all the time say this, and I've heard this many times. Oh, I used to go to church and pray all the time, but God never gave me what I wanted or prayed for. So I gave it all up. How many have ever heard someone say that? Show of hands? Show of hands? Yeah. Absolutely. They are treating God the way they would never tolerate from others to treat them. It would be like you have a lot of money. People suck up to you. They kind of love you. But then you lose all your money and they're no longer your friends. Would you feel used? Absolutely. That's what Satan is saying about Job. But we find that Job is not using God. Job loves God in and of himself. Waiting on the Lord means to love him in and of himself, regardless of what you may or may not get from God. It's only in difficult times that you can turn your self-centered, exploitive relationship with God into real love. It's during tough times that God is asking us a question. Did you get into this relationship with me for me to serve you or for you to serve me and if you love him during tough times in and of himself you will find the tough times will turn your heart will turn your heart from a lump of coal into a diamond into a diamond of of peace and poise unlike you've ever had before and that will give you a strength and a stamina unlike ever before I like the verses found in Psalm 16, 2, 4, 8, 11. The psalmist says, apart from you, God, I have no good thing. The troubles of those will increase who run after other gods. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. See, he's loving God affectionately. That's what waiting is in and of himself. And then the last one is faithfully. This is the best. <laughs> I mean, this verse, the righteous will live by faith. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. I mean, it's found in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and also Hebrews 10.38. The righteous will live by faith. I would encourage you to meditate on that verse. It's a, it's a powerful verse. And once again, this is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Every major religion is based on works righteousness. Obey God, he will bless you. This is based on, no, God blesses you. He gives you a right standing with him by faith in his son. 
See, righteousness is both, there's this imputed righteousness that God gives me my righteousness. I stand before God. All is well between God and I. By the way, that's our greatest need. That's what we long for. That's why we we go after so many different things, whether it be romance or finances or job promotion, whatever it is, it's the emptiness inside of all of our hearts. We so desperately want to have that sense of acceptance and significance and security that only can be found in God, and he gives that to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that if I have a right standing with God, then when troubles come into my life, God is not punishing me because Jesus Christ took all of my punishment on the cross. Why would God ask for two payments for sin? He doesn't. But God will use that as discipline in my life, certainly. But I know that I stand right before God regardless of what goes down in my life. That's that imputed righteousness. But there's also an imparted righteousness. That imparted righteousness is that his power and peace is there that will, that will outweigh its bigger in glory than any problem, trauma, trial, difficulty that I face. So when I go through difficulties, not only do I know in my heart this is not punishment from God because I stand right, in right relationship with God, that's that righteousness. But also, there is nothing that can come against me that can be greater than the power that he gives me with his empowering presence in my life, enabling me to be what he wants me to be, to do what he wants me to do. See, that's righteousness by faith. Faith. It tells us we live by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7. Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. 11.6 tells us that uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That as we study God's word, the more we grow in our faith and our knowledge and intimacy with the God of this Bible And we begin to rest in the reality of the fact that when I go through difficulties, that his grace is sufficient no matter what I'm going through. So here I put this on your notes. Faith is a combination of God's truth entering the head. So it's comprehension. So there's truths about the beauty, the glory, the nature of who God is, what Jesus Christ has done for us through the cross. That's comprehension, igniting the heart. That's conviction. So you begin to reflect on it, think about it. It goes deep into your heart. It stirs you. That's conviction and then outworking through your hands. That's faith. Just knowledge alone is not faith. I hear people all the time say, oh yeah, I believe in God. And yet it doesn't stir their hearts. It doesn't ignite their heart in, in a conviction. And it's not outworking through their hands, through their life and how they're relating to those within their life. But faith is a combination of God's truth entering the head, igniting the heart and outworking through the hands. How can that happen in our lives, even this morning? There's some great verses here. Luke 12, 37. As I look ahead to the future, regardless of how bad it gets, it tells us in Second uh, Corinthians four seventeen. Paul says, Our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And Luke 12, 37 gives us a little bit of a glimpse of that. Listen to this verse. This is a parable by Jesus talking about a master coming home to his servants And there are those that are faithful and those that are unfaithful. And he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds faithful when he comes back. He will dress himself, the master, speaking Jesus, speaking of himself, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. 
If you are faithful to the end, if you wait on God to the end, if you serve God to the end, when you take your last breath on earth, first breath in heaven, it says that your master will will gird himself. Literally, it says he will put on clothes and he will serve you. That's an amazing thought. That he will serve you. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds faithful. When he comes back, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Jesus is saying that he will focus all of his powers to pour happiness, honor, and value upon you. And we know he's going to do this in the future because he did this in the past. John 13, 1 through 20, he washed the disciples' feet. But we also know that because it tells us in Mark 10, 45, Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And his ultimate service to us was on the cross. And so here's the last point. To the degree you see him waiting on you through the cross is to the degree you'll be able to wait on him. Bow your heads with me. Let's take a moment. I'm going to invite our band up here. They're going to lead us in that song we sang earlier, Waiting on the Lord. God, we thank you so much for your message here this morning to us. Lord, help us to learn to wait on you. As you're sitting there and reflecting and thinking about what you are waiting on God for, just, God, I pray that each one of us would learn to wait on you responsibly, objectively, patiently, and affectionately and faithfully. God, let us begin to understand the implications of that in our life. God, I know that there are those here today that have grown weary in well-doing. But you've told us that if we would not give up, we would, we would reap a harvest if we do not give up. I pray that they would keep their eyes on you. God, you did not give up. You gave your heart, your life to us. God, may we not give up. May we continue to look to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing this song. It's based on Isaiah forty thirty one, and it says, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word wait is an interesting word. It means to hope. It means to twist, to bind. It's kind of like a rope. It means to, to be strong or robust, to expect, to hope. My wife and I, we have these snail vines that, that surround our place, and they're up on the chain link fence. And if we were to plant those snail vines out in the middle of the, out in the, middle of the, uh, the yard, they would kind of grow out flat. But because they're up against the fence, they're able to weave themselves in and out of that fence. And that's what he's saying. When we wait on the Lord, we are, in essence, weaving our lives in and out of God. We are waiting responsibly and objectively, patiently, affectionately, and faithfully. Let's do that this morning. Let's sing this from our heart to our Savior and King.